Amen. Uh, you can go have a seat. Good to see you guys. How are we? Thank you. Uh, the one person who's happy to be here. And uh, the rest of you. We'll get there, okay? Because we're talking about money. Aren't you excited to talk about, talk about that? This awkward pause. Okay, we're going to have to work on this. I need a little bit of help today. Um, last night, last night from about 3 to 5 in the morning, uh, because when you live in the city, people have different rhythms and schedules than you do. Um, so from 3 to 5 last night, I think our neighbors were not only up and partying, but their dog was partying as well and barking. And I was awake the entire time. And so um, I'm coming in like a little bit energy low, and we'd just love it if uh, we can enjoy this passage together. That sound good? You want to do this together? Okay. All right. All right, so we are jumping back into Acts. We took a bit of a break for Easter, and we titled what we're aiming for in 2019, um, Presence, because the big thing that we're asking God for is that he would, by the power of the Spirit, cultivate within us to be the kind of people who not only know about him, but know him. That's what we're asking. We don't just know about God. We want to know God because we said the difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody personally is all the difference in the world. Or we put it this way, what we're asking that God would cultivate within us is an understanding that Christianity is more than just a body of information, but an invitation into a relationship with a living God. If the lens through which you understand Christianity is it's basically a body of information to obtain, acquire, master, Christianity might be helpful, useful, informative, but it won't be beautiful, and consequently, it will not be life-transforming, and it's been really encouraging. I just feel like, actually, normal rhythm, it's almost been pr God prepping me to come back into the series, is bumping into people randomly in coffee shops around this neighborhood and being like, hey, that thing you talked about at the beginning of the year, it's happened in my life now, um, and we're just kind of, you know, we're almost halfway through the year, but we're asking God to do, uh, to do more. That leads us then to jumping back into the book of Acts. Now, the reason we've been in Acts in order to obtain this particular destination to get there is because, and this will serve as your reminder of where we've been um, in light of the break that we took, is we've seen a couple of realities unfold. The first is that Acts tells us basically the history of how Christianity went from being this small, insignificant, marginalized idea to a global, powerful movement where we'll even see in a couple of months, the first Christians will enter into cities and their reputation has grown to such a degree that they're described as the women and men who had turned the world upside down as they were entering into cities for the very first time. How does that happen? As well as how do we continue that legacy to see the same sort of transformation happen in our city today? So that's first, it's just a history of what did God do through his people? But you also have to understand that what Acts is about is more than just a history of what God did through his people, but what God was doing in the hearts of his people to make them these kinds of people who can actually turn the world upside down for his glory. The early chapters of Acts sees, shows us how God made good on a promise to give us God the Holy Spirit. We saw that particular in the early part of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And um, I, I was thinking about this image. I, I came across it this past week. There was a guy named Thomas Goodwin who wrote uh, like 400 years ago, and uh, he was trying to wrap his mind around like what in the world was happening in the early chapters of Acts, and he said he, was, he lived in London, he was walking on the streets of London, and he uh, observed a, uh, a dad and his son walking hand in hand at the edge of an intersection. They didn't have cars back then, you know, horses, and they're waiting for the horses to go by, and uh, as the son was growing a little bit restless, waiting for the horses to go by, he uh, reaches down, the dad reaches down, grabs the son up into his arms and kind of shakes him and cuddles him and kisses him and tickles him and the, the son kind of squeals and then the uh, father puts the son back down and they walk across. And he said, as soon as I saw that unfold, I had a perfect image of what God did through the giving of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 
that while positionally nothing changed in the relationship between the father and the son, the son had always been as much a son before that experience as he was after that. Experientially, that son knew he was a son in that moment in a brand new way. And so it is the work of God the Holy Spirit. Paul would even tell us in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God that we'd not just know about God, but we would know God as well as we would experientially experience that we have been adopted into God's family as his children. That then brings us to the end of Acts chapter 4. We're going to see how this overwhelming, emotional, beautiful, spiritual reality then intersects with the normal grind of life. I think a lot of times what can happen when we become a spirit-fueled, spirit-dependent, spirit-celebratory people is we can believe that God can only be found in the mountaintop experiences, and consequently, when you get into the grind of the normal rhythm of life, it feels like God isn't there. But we have a high view of the providence and the sovereignty and the goodness and the spirit of God shaping and orchestrating every area of our life, and we believe underneath the good and gracious reign and rule of Jesus, all of life is significant, not just the emotionally spectacular, but the normal grind of life as well. And that really reality comes to life at the end of Acts chapter 4 when we see the people of God come to handle their money as a spirit-fueled people. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren, I was reading her this past week, and she says, the new life into which we are baptized is lived out in days, hours, and minutes. God is forming us into a new people, and the place of that formation is in the small moments of today. And if you think about the small, normal rhythms of life that impact us day by day, um, really, nothing is more significant and impactful than the way we handle our money. Our money impacts the way we spend the majority of our waking hours. It spend, impacts where we can live. A lot of times, if we're not making enough of it here, if we have a great church and a great community, we'll go to some place that we hate just so that we have enough of that money. It impacts so much of our lives. And consequently, it's really good news then that the Spirit has something to say. We even get a snapshot into the history of what did the Spirit do in God's people um, as it pertains to their finances when he was alive and changing lives. So we're going to work through this, look at this together, and uh, hopefully we'll be different people on the backside. Sound good? All right, let's walk, work through this. The first reality we're going to look at is the children of God and a changed financial perspective. So Acts begins, Christianity is a small marginalized movement, a few dozen people. They're crazy, saying this guy worship. They're worshiping this guy who they claim raised from the dead. And all of a sudden, the spirit falls. Everything changes. And the movement now at the end of Acts chapter 4 has grown somewhere approximately probably around 10,000 people. Exponential growth. Verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now I want to pause briefly here because I think sometimes what happens is romanticiz- ro- let me say this. romanticization. Did I say that correctly? Romanticization. Of the past, it breeds a sense of being disgruntled in the present because our present reality doesn't match the past. And Christians tend to romanticize the early church in the book of Acts, especially a scene like this one where they're described as being of one heart and one soul. And you're kind of like, man, they must have had such great chemistry and compatibility and everybody got along. And then you look at your present reality and you're like, and all I got around me is these bunch of jerks who are getting on my nerves all the time, right? It's important to actually read the text. And I just wanted to take a brief aside in the coming weeks to understand that what we're going to see unfold is that 
this group of men and women, they weren't just, you know, they didn't just have natural chemistry or natural compatibility. They had to fight for this kind of unity. They had to fight for this type of unity in the context of covenantal community. And it, wasn't just, it didn't just naturally happen, but it was earned. It was bled for. It was fought for. Now, we're going to see that their unity then unfolded and expressed itself in generosity with their money. It said, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So remember what's happened up to this point. Verse 31 gives a really great context to this. That God's spirit has entered the hearts of God's children to testify us that we really are God's kids. And we're seeing that as this happens in the early church, the practical outworking of this is financial generosity. Now the question is, why or how exactly does that happen? Well, as the Spirit of God enters our hearts and changes us, three particular realities happen inside of us that leads to us being really generous with our money. One, our hearts are humbled. If you look at that line, it says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, what happens is sometimes people misinterpret this line to believe that like, what's happening is the early church went full-blown socialist and there was like an ending of private property um, and God was sort of establishing by the power of his spirit some sort of political policy. But that's what's happening in this moment. Something far more significant than political policy is being established, but life transformation to such a degree that there is a radical reformation of the perspective in which these people are understanding their own money. That is, there is a transformation of people's hearts to be humbled to a place of saying that everything in my life is not my own, but was given to me by my father. Now, this is a direct affront to an American culture where typically the narrative of the stuff that we have is that it's mine, that it was earned, that I lifted myself up by my own bootstraps and through my hard work and through my um, determination, I willed my success into existence and consequently everything that I have is mine and I will do with it as I please. Now here's the thing, it is perfectly reasonable to have that perspective towards your stuff. There's only one catch. It's perfectly reasonable to have that perspective towards your stuff as long as you don't self-identify as a follower of Jesus, okay? That's the only catch. Because when you become a follower of Jesus, you come to a perspective to understand that everything in your life that is significant was given to you, that you were made, that you were designed. Like, we're not trying to dismiss the importance of hard work. We're not trying to dismiss um, maximization of gifts. But do you understand the one thing that being gifted necessitates? Somebody giving you those gifts in the most important areas of life, regardless of how hardworking you might be and determined you might be, things like your existence, things like the breath that fills up your lungs, things like the country that you live in, things like the time and history in which you live, you did not determine through your own hard work, but instead was given to you by the good and gracious Father. And consequently, what happens as the Spirit testifies to us of that reality is this humility to say, I don't own anything. I didn't will my experience into existence, but I am one who has received. And consequently, I will loosen my death grip on my stuff. So our hearts are humble. Two, our hearts are elevated. Because the Spirit is testifying to us that we are God's children, our hearts are elevated to a place of knowing that we can be generous because we have a God who has pledged to us that he will take care of us as a good dad. Now, I put this up here. I was thinking about this this past week. I was asking myself the question, why would people in the life of the summit not be generous with their money? And here's what I wrote. Is that in a church like ours, 
our lack of generosity will probably stem more from fear rather than stinginess. Does that make sense? So if you're struggling to be generous with your money, my guess is it's not because you love the idea of being stingy. I think we're in a unique cultural moment where generosity, being described as being generous, is an admirable quality to be described as. I think probably all of you, if we polled you, especially in front of all these people, you'd be like, yeah, I would love the idea of being generous. I'm just scared that if I am generous, I'm not going to be okay because I'm not in a very convenient stage of life right now where it's a good time for me to be generous, right? Because it's like, you just graduated and you're working your first job and you have debt or you just got married and you're trying to have some element of savings or you just had kids. And the thing about kids, like financially, they're wonderful experientially. Financially, kids are not good, right? Because like they're the most expensive members of your family and they do not have jobs. And economically, that is not um, a, good, a good system, right? You don't, that's not like a great... So, or you're older, right? And so you're like starting, you know, you're starting to be like, I only have a few more years to work or you're retired or whatever it is. Um, you know, here's the spoiler. You know what the stage of life is where it's most convenient to give your money away? None of them. None of them, right? Like, like has anybody ever been to a place of just like, yeah, this is just a really good season of life. To not save and to not spend, but to give. That's just really what, right? There's never a convenient stage of life to give. And I think there's something deeper than that than, oh, you're just like, being selfish and uh, I just want more stuff. But instead, there's this fear of if I give this away as opposed to saving this or spending this on myself, I'm not going to be okay. You ever felt that before? Like, I would love to give. I would love to be generous. But look at my bank account and I'm not going to make ends meet. And our hearts are comforted and elevated when the Spirit testifies to us that we have a Father in heaven, that we never have the ability to outgive. His, his resources are limited, as well as he has pledged his uh, provision for us as a good and perfect dad. Even what's been really amazing have happened, um, here's maybe the craziest thing that's happened in our church for the last five months. So we talked about, you know, we've been talking about how like, God's doing like a really fresh work in the life of our church. And, um, and one of the craziest outworkings of it has been the number of people independent of one another who have come to me talking about how they felt convicted by God to be radically generous with their resources, even though it's a really bad time for them to be really generous with their resources. Now, the reason this is so crazy to me is because this is our first sermon in 2019 talking about money. So it's like those people, totally independent of themselves, without me saying anything whatsoever, have just had God working in their heart to such a degree where they have changed their pattern of living in such a way to say, hey, even though it's not convenient, I'm going to be generous because the Spirit is testifying to me that I have a Father in heaven that I could never outgive. I could never outgive. I love seeing that. It's super. It's really, really encouraging. So our hearts are humbled. Our hearts are elevated. And then third, our hearts are transformed. Romans 8 that we referenced earlier says the Spirit not only testifies to us that we are daughters and sons, but that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. So here's the really great work of the Spirit, is that God not only tells us what to do, but also the Spirit transforms and conforms us into who God has called us to be. You see, what happens is it's the generosity of Jesus towards us that compels us to be deeply generous, not just with our money, but with our entire lives. And I love this because this is what differentiates the church and our call to generosity from all other expressions and calls for generosity in culture. Like we said earlier, we are in this particular cultural moment where nonprofits, causes, um, like you cannot walk down Larimer Street and get a cup of coffee without somebody asking you for money for their cause. Am I right? 
right? Like we have secular evangelists on street corners. I thought evangelism was a thing of the past, but now there's secular expressions of it where people, just as you're going to Denver Central Market, are like, do you have a moment for me to talk to you about the Church of Jesus Christ? No, this nonprofit um, that's changing the world. And they ask you very loudly about it. Do you have a moment to change the world? And you're like, I just have to get coffee, right? But it's like, but like you feel like a terrible person, okay? Or you're checking out at the grocery store. And the cashier asks you very loudly, hey, would you like to, on top of the groceries you just bought that were already too expensive, would you like to make a donation to charity? And they say it very loudly. So everybody in the line behind you has an opportunity to judge whether or not you are a decent human being or not, right? And probably a lot of you have given money, not because you believed in the cause, but because you didn't want to be judged in that moment. I was at, I'll leave the grocery store out. I was at a grocery store recently uh, this was a couple months ago. I was checking out, and the cashier asked me very loudly, would you like to give money to charity? And I asked the question, well, which charity? And she was like, I don't know. It's just charity. I'm like, well, I'm going to need a little bit more detail before I give, <laughs> I give money away uh, in that way. And, um, but it was still, I still felt it in that moment of I'm being judged because I'm not just vaguely giving money away to like, something I don't even know what it is. I love this about the church because what differentiates the church from every other earthly institution organization is that our call for generosity, our rhythms of generosity, our life of generosity is fueled not by guilt, but rather by the grace of the gospel. And I love this because, you know, it's like, I'm not opposed to talking about money, okay? I'm not, I'm burdened for this because where your money goes is what you love the most. And when your money's out of order, your whole life feels out of order, doesn't it? So I'm passionate about this because we love you and we care for you. We want to shepherd you to a place of health and loving the things and having your money fueled towards the things that Jesus says is life that is truly life. But you know what I love is that like when the New Testament, even though it talks about generosity all the time, what you're never going to find is this guilt-fueled, you better give money or um, you're going to be in big trouble. You got to think about it. It's like, no, like actually what we see is over and over again, a call to be generous because your heart has been transformed by the generosity that Jesus first expressed to you in the gospel. Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians 8, he says this, I say this, radical generosity with your life, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you, which is like the weirdest thing to be at the end of a giving pitch, right? <laughs> like, like, I need you to be generous because you need to be generous, right? Like, typically, the giving pitches are the opposite, right? Like, we're not going to exist if you don't give money. But Paul turns it on its head to be like, you know why you need to be generous? Because you need you to be generous. Why? Why? Because it seems initially like the predominant American narrative of me, mine, my stuff, I'm in control, I watch out for myself, I take care of myself, it seems controlling, it feels safe, it feels easy, it feels comfortable, doesn't it? But on the other side of that narrative is not life, but rather death and fear. Fear that you are living a life where you have to take care of yourself. And it feels initially like a death to have a regular rhythm of generosity where you're just giving away money, even though it's a terrible time to give away money because it's always a terrible time to give away money. But what that is is an invitation into not just knowing that God is a father who provides, but daily experiencing and walking with a father who provides. 
And that's the life that's truly life. And I, I'm telling you, like, we could pause right now, and I could be like, hey, has anybody experienced that? And you probably run up here with, like, your praise banner, grabbing the microphone from me, being like, let me tell you about the faithfulness of God to me and how giving away my stuff gave back to me a far greater treasure because what's better than my stuff, what's better than experiences, what's better than that vacation, what's better than any of that is the treasure who is God, and he gave me himself in the midst of that generosity. That's why it benefits you. That's why it benefits you, and that's why we're zealous to produce within you a regular rhythm of generosity. All right, this leads us to two. The first church budget, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, because this should be the most excited you've been in the entire sermon. You should have been high-fiving and getting emotional and been like, oh, thanks be to God, thanks be to God. But actually, I love this because um, I think sometimes I feel like a church budget is like a necessary evil to have to like do the work of ministry. Like it's like we just have to do it. But we actually see in Acts chapter four the establishment of the first church budget. And, and what it shows us is that the church isn't like any other institution or organization in the world. Now we'll get there. Let me show you what happens. Verse 33 says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. I love this snapshot of what this early community was like in verse 33, where it sees power and grace wedded together to mark this community, which would be like, that's beautiful. But how does power and grace mark this community through the radical generosity of the community? Radical generosity brings grace and brings power. Why? Why? Because as we give away our earthly treasures, we are putting on display together a city within the city, this countercultural posture that Jesus is our greatest treasure, and that is powerful. It has practical impacts for the community as well. It says there was not a needy person among them, verse 34. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The first church budget, we'll come back to this in a second. Verse 36 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Now, why are we getting all these details about Barnabas? One is because he's become a major figure in Acts. We'll learn more about him in the coming weeks. But what we're finding out about Barnabas is he is extremely privileged, extremely wealthy. He's doing very well for himself. Those details that he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Also, that he sold a field that belonged to him. It was very rare to own anything in this day, maybe somewhere around 10% of people own stuff. And what we're seeing with Barnabas is he was this privileged guy. We've said this before. Privilege is not innately bad. Being wealthy is not innately bad. But believing you willed your privilege or wealth into existence and consequently it is for you and not for the leveraging of the advancement of the blessing of the people around you and the advancement of God's kingdom is bad. You understand the nuance there? Privilege is not bad in itself unless you believe you are entitled to that privilege. Privilege in the legacy of Jesus Christ and the continuation of the legacy of Barnabas is meant to be emptied for the sake of the advancement of the cause of Christ. And we see this marked Barnabas, this extremely influential, this extremely wealthy guy. And what we're also going to see about Barnabas is that it's the faithfulness in the little stuff that qualifies you to lead in the significant stuff. Everyone, everybody wants to be a leader. Everybody wants to turn the world upside down. But what we see with Barnabas, yeah, he'll do that type of stuff soon enough. But what qualified him to be used by God in that way was his faithfulness and the normal rhythm of being obedient with the resources God had given him. Now, let's go back. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. 
and it was distributed to each as any had need. So basically the establishment of the first church budget. What you have happened in this moment is that God's people, there's a slide for this, yep, God's people, compelled by God's spirit, pull together God's resources to accomplish God's work, to bless people in and around this community. That's what's happening at the end of Acts chapter four. And that's what we as a church, as we exist, as you're generous, as you as members fulfill what you've covenanted to do and fund this ministry, that's what we're doing. We're God's people in line with the legacy of Acts 4, compelled by God's spirit, pulling together God's resources to accomplish God's work to bless people in and around this community. And this is what got me fired up. This is why there's exclamation points behind the first church budget is because when you start to think about a budget, when you think about the Summit Church's existence through this lens, you start to become like, I just like feel deeply encouraged that we're this organization that kind of does nothing, uh, does um, work that's unlike any other work out there and we're funded unlike any other organization that's out there as well. So think about this. You're generous to our church. What, do you, what are some of the things you help us do? I'm not gonna go through everything, but what are some of the things you help us do? Well, we are able to take care of people, for example, in line with the legacy of Acts chapter four. People come to us with practical needs and we discern how can we best help and we help and we do that anonymously because we're not trying to like bring people up here as charity cases so that like, you know, they feel embarrassed and they feel like a, you know, a project or a cause. Or something. They're just like a person who has a need and so we just help them anonymously because you've been generous to us as well. Or think about the normal grind of what's happening today. Not only that, but think about how there's secular expressions of this and the way they fund what they do as opposed to what we do what we do. So for example, you fund me being able to spend a considerable amount of time on a weekly basis, be able to study the Bible, study commentaries, and come to you on a Sunday. What I hope is with these fresh loaves of God's wisdom that beautifully, bizarrely, supernaturally intersect with what it is that God is doing in your life, and you receive wisdom and guidance and a sense of direction for the way you should conduct your life. You know, it might be seem, you know, especially if you grew up in church, the rhythm of preaching might seem normal, but think about how there's like a few secular and cultural expressions of this. For example, TED Talks have gone from like nothing to something over the past decade or so, where people gather together in a room like this one and they hear somebody talk to them and give them wisdom for what they should kind of architect the whole of their lives around. Does anybody know what it costs to go to a TED Talk? Anybody know? I looked this up. I'm gonna read this to you, Okay. I don't know what, this is like the most encouraging thing I read all week. Um, <laughs> this is from a Google, uh, how to attend a TED Talk. Attending a technology, entertainment, and development, parentheses, TED, talk can be a potentially life-changing event. Ooh, that's compelling. I want some life-changing events. Um, as you'll be able to listen, share, and interact with great thinkers from all over the world in a variety of fields. If you have 5,000 US dollars budget, and want to experience a large event, you can send in a written application, parentheses, set aside two hours to complete, to attend a TED Talk conference. So as long as you got like 5,000 liquid right now um, that you don't need for anything else, you can, ex you can encounter a life-changing event. Isn't that, isn't that such good? Now, here's what I did this morning. I was like, surely that can't be right. Like some of you are thinking that right now, right? Surely that can't be right. And I was like afraid. I was gonna say this and one of you would Google and then you'd come to me next Sunday, you'd be like, liar! And um, so that's why I do my work, right? So I Googled it. And not only is it right, but apparently the $5,000 tickets, because they're so cheap, sell out almost instantly. So like one of the other websites I was reading was like, you probably need to do a $10,000 donation to make sure that you can get in the door. So that life-changing experience can be offered to you. But, but like you came here, right? And I'm not saying this is like as good as a professional TED Talk, but it's like, 
They ain't $10,000 better than me. I know that. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right? It's like, they're better, but not that much better. And, um, you know, we had this worship. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's really good. It's really beautiful. Anybody pay admission to get in here? If you paid admission to somebody, they're not with us, okay? <laughs> and don't do it next week. Don't do it. It's just free. Like, come, come. Let's, let's talk about the most important. And it's like, you know what's amazing? We're not only gathering together. We're not just giving, I'm not anti-TED Talk, but we're doing something more than just giving you tips for having, for, tips for just living like a more self-actualized life. We are distributing to you uh, the loaves of life. We're distributing to you the wisdom of God to architect the totality of your life around. Thanks, PT. Yeah, I hear you, bud. <laughs> What do we do? We get people into places of community. It's interesting, the Denver Post, everybody's writing articles. All these people are flooding in Denver. Everybody's alone, isolated. They don't have friends. What happens to a culture when people don't have friends? They all kill each other, all that sort of stuff. You know, they're trying to, what, social isolation is terrible for a city. And uh, we do this crazy thing called city groups where we've started 15 of them over the past year. Just over the past year to see men and women develop deep, intentional, purposeful relationships for free. There's cultural expressions of this. The dude who did the fire Festival, Billy, what's his last name? Anybody remember? But you, McFarland, okay. Yeah, his project before the fire Festival was launching a credit card, Magnesis, which was aimed towards meeting this particular need we're talking about. Young people moving to New York City, alone, isolated. How do they make friends? How do they meet people? It's bad for them to be alone. He even says on the fire Festival documentary, they're suckers, They'll pay anything, and they did. He launches this credit card, extravagant membership fee, predatory interest loan rates, all so that people can have friends. It's like, yeah, there's cultural expressions of this, but for free, for free. We take care of people's kids. You know what's really funny to me is when people show up to our church and they haven't been a part of church in their entire life and their parents, they almost always expect to have to pay a fee for us to watch their kids because, like, where in the world do people watch your kids for free? Ikea does it only because, only because some of you are like, Ikea, I know. Because, because they know you'll be in a better mood and buy more stuff without your kids there. Um, and not only that, but it's like, I mean, we want to do a lot more of it. You know, one of the things we talked about for family guidance for the last couple of years is we want to raise like a ton of money to be able to expand this building to create more kid space because while we love this street, um, you know what's happening with almost all the development on Larimer Street is it's aimed towards really expensive beer or like $17 cheeseburgers. That's like what everything is on Larimer Street right now. And um, we want to do this really crazy countercultural thing. I know it's not as cool as beer and $17 cheeseburgers. We want to like shape the next generation of the city. Yeah, like we want to like shape the next generation of the city. And we would put like a ton of money into it. We'd be, we believe like it's that important. And you add on top of that, not only do we do that, and that's just like a, a, you know, a glimpse into what it is that we do, but then we give whatever we can away to see this happen through other churches throughout our city and to the ends of the earth as well. Okay, so, so already you're like, wow, you guys do stuff that almost nobody else does. How do you fund it? Well, here's how we fund it. We have no membership fees. We have no admission, no tickets. We believe the Spirit of God changes the hearts of God's kids to such a degree that they radically give their stuff away and we pool it together to fund all of this. Anybody with like the least bit of business savviness would be like, that is the worst business model I've ever heard 
in my entire life. Yeah, I know, I know. It's just like the bizarre economy of God where God's done that. And could, could you just pause for a second and think about the fact that we exist almost a decade later as the center of blessing in this community when almost every other organization institution, I'm not anti-business, but their posture is, how do we get as much from you while giving as little in return? And our posture is how do we give with you? How do we give to you? How do we give to you? How do we give to you as a reflection of the gospel? And how does that generosity point to the generosity of Jesus so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he might cultivate within you a desire for grace-fueled generosity as well? Man, we are unlike anything else in the world, and we are funded unlike anything else in the world. That's what you're a part of when you're a part of the church. So here's, here's what I want to leave you with, okay? Anytime you talk about money, I understand it's sensitive, but I like talking about money because we love you and we, we care about you. Typically in this moment, you feel like one of two people, okay? The first is you feel like guilty and shame because you're not generous. And um, let me just say this in this moment. I do not know what anybody gives because sometimes what happens is I say like not generous and I look over in that direction and then they're like, he knows, he knows. It's like, I'm just looking generally in your direction, okay? Like, I'm sure you're all wonderful people and it's, the problem's all over there or whatever. It's like, I don't, I don't know what anybody gives. I don't wanna know. I, don't, I couldn't even know if I, I wanted to know because I wanna treat everybody the same, treat everybody fairly. But here's what I would say to you is if you don't feel like you've been generous with your money, we love you and come back next week. Don't let shame or guilt leads you to a place of isolation or inferiority. But instead, just take some space to figure out and ask, we're gonna have a time of response, just take some time to ask, like, why am I not being generous? And there can be a diversity of reasons. It might just be like, I'm really scared to be generous. That's okay. Like, let somebody pray over you in our time of response. It might be like, I have no plan for generosity at all. Like, I wanna give, but I give last as opposed to giving first and all the money's gone before I come to the place of being able to give. Yeah, like maybe you just need a plan. It might feel like your like financial life is completely out of order and you just need somebody to help you and shepherd you set up a budget. You're probably one of those people who's sitting here right now being like, man, I wish in high school instead of, you know, taking this useless class that I don't use now as an adult whatsoever, like could we have just had like a day on budgeting? Just like one day. One day I would have been a much, much healthier. Okay, that's fine. Like we help people with that as well, we'd love to help shepherd you through that as well. But to move, take steps of going from being stingy to being generous to reflect the generosity of Jesus. And here's what I would say to you if you have been generous, is I would in this time of response really pause and give thanks to see that you're not just a really good financial planner, you're not just really disciplined, but the spirit of God is tangibly and practically moved in your life. Because I think a lot of times what we yearn for, especially when we talk about being a spirit-filled people, is we want these huge mountaintop experiences. And I think God gives that. I think he gives deeply emotional experiences. I think God gives that. But I think God also has his spirit move into the seemingly normal areas of life, like regular rhythms of generosity. And you have things like automated giving and all that set up. It doesn't feel that spectacular. Pause and understand you're not just disciplined. You're an adopted son or daughter of God who's been moved by the spirit to reflect in the rhythm of your life the generosity of Jesus that allows us to exist as well, okay? So we're gonna have the space to respond. I'm gonna pray, and then I'll walk you through kind of a diversity of ways uh, that we can, we can respond. Father, we love you. We're thankful uh, for your generosity uh, to us, and we're thankful that we exist. 
I just pause even right now that people would, I think a lot of times, especially in a culture where it feels like everything is free and it's very costly to do what it is that we do, um, that, uh, We just see your hand on our existence as a church. We're thankful for the men and women who even fill this room in this moment will fill this room throughout today um, who have been deeply sacrificial with their things um, so that people's lives literally can be transformed, not just now, but in the life to come as well. Father, I want to pray for my friends, uh, my sisters and brothers in this room right now who feel um, embarrassed about their um, generosity And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would protect them from shame or feelings of abandonment. Um, You're a dad. Like, a dad doesn't abandon when when a child doesn't obey, but rather draws him or her into his loving arms and instructs him towards the truth. God, would you do that right now? Would you um, even give the gift of uh, Romans 8 where your spirit, particularly for people who feel like they don't deserve um, to be your child, would have testified in their hearts um, that they are your children. And that, that that comfort even there would just say, like, you know what, I can, I can really change the way I handle my money. Um, I can really change that. I also want to pray for uh, my friends who have been really generous. And I think a lot of times people who have been really generous instantly go to a place of feeling like they should always be doing more. Um, I just pray that they would receive the gift of celebration and uh, appreciation and thankfulness that, they're doing, like, maybe the most, most countercultural thing that can happen in a, uh, a culture like ours where it's super expensive and, and we live in a culture of recreation and experience and all those things are super expensive, so it's easy to just spend all our money on ourselves. Um, and to give money away is a radically different story. And so thankful for the generosity that we just exist. We just exist because of that generosity. So let us now respond well in this time. And we ask these things in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen.